So I'm not sure who it was coming from, but there were a lot of noises that kind of sounded like the sound mix from a horror movie that just happened. (laughs) It may have been me. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your friendly neighborhood podcasters, uh, friendly neighborhood co-hosts, is what I meant to say, uh, Martha Sullivan, um, local guinea pig herder, currently, uh, and I am here with my other co-host, as always. Uh, I am Pete Romberg, and I'm enjoying, enjoying the uh, wonderful sound of some April showers outside. So if you hear any weird, stray noises, it's just that it's raining real hard in Milwaukee. I'm the rain king. There we go. I love counting crows. Did you make the rain? Should we be blaming you? Maybe. <laughs> uh, we are joined today... Uh, in very exciting news by um, friend of the show and husband to a previous guest, uh, Joe Caputo. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hello. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Is there anything that you feel people should know about you before we embark on our discussion? Um, Let me think. Uh, I guess... Maybe to give a little bit of credential, particularly to what we're going to be talking about a little bit later, um, I have a, I hold a couple of master's degrees, one in Eastern Classics and a second in Film Studies. So I'm real fun at parties. And Your homework pick uh, is suddenly making a lot of sense. Right. And um, I like to refer to myself as hyper-employable because those are like... <laughs> very usable degrees in a lot of different areas. Uh, You may be overqualified for this podcast, (laughs) but we are happy to have you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So later in the episode, we are going to be talking about found families on how they appear and drive the stories of a couple of different pieces of media. But before we get to that, we are going to talk about what is stuck in our heads this week. Um, I am going to go ahead and start because I was watching it mere minutes before we jumped on this call. Um, listen, longtime listeners may remember when we used to do uh, the last piece of media that we experienced before Pete and I started gaming the system so that we could just talk about whatever we wanted to talk about. <laughs> um, for me this week, they would have been the same thing, and that is a Schitt's Creek. Uh, which I have been, I am late to the party on, but am deeply enjoying. Uh, For anybody who is not currently aware of this marvelous show, it's a half-hour comedy from Canada about an incredibly wealthy family that loses everything except for a podunk town, which the father of the family bought as a joke, um, and is now their only asset because the IRS did not consider it worth seizing. Um, and about the culture clash between this uh, fallen wealthy family and the like 200 citizens of this tiny little town. Um, it reminds me a bit of Arrested Development, except it doesn't make me want to climb bodily out of my skin with awkwardness. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, Shit's Creek is great. It's... it's so the episodes I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the half hour comedy. Mm-hmm. Every episode feels like a bite-sized piece of candy that I can just <laughs> enjoy. Yeah. And like you were saying, there's so much heart to it even though uh the the crux is clearly that you're supposed to be kind of laughing at this family. Uh you still somehow come away feeling a sense of uh, love for them because they're just so disconnected from real life. And you do get the feeling that they're trying their best, even though they don't really know what that means. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, Yeah, so I'm I'm about a quarter of the way into season two and enjoying it very, very much. 
Yeah, it's like a fine wine. I feel like it gets better every season. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I, I had heard of it, but knew nothing of it. And so you explaining its premise has me thinking I, I should maybe uh, come around and, and give it a try. Yes. Cause it, yeah, especially because both of you are praising it very highly. Well, and for anybody who's fond, like, I, it shares DNA with things like Parks and Recreation or um, not really The Office because the characters, like, actually like each other, mm-hmm, which was right. always my issue with The Office. But a lot of that, like, very deadpan humor. Um, also, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara play the parents. Sure. And Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara is doing comedy on a level that I have, like, never experienced before. (laughs) I don't know what her accent is, but it was created in a lab to, like, just tickle me every Mm -hmm. time she opens her mouth. Yes. It, gosh. (laughs) It's so good. Yeah, no, it's perfect. Completely unrelated, Uh, I just saw Venom a few nights ago, and if we want to talk about accents where I have no idea what he's doing, but he's doing it real big. (laughs) Uh, Pete, what is stuck in your head this week? Uh, Vampire Weekend has a new album coming out on May 3rd called Father of the Bride, and they've been releasing a lot of new music in advance of that. Um, at this rate, it seems like they'll have just released the entire album by May 3rd anyway, which I'm not complaining about. I'm enjoying all of the new music they're releasing. Um, they just dropped two new songs on Friday, both of which are fantastic, uh, but neither of them quite reach the level of, uh, the first song that they dropped called Harmony Hall, which is just a delightful sort of twangy guitar indie pop song, um... But the other thing I wanted to to flag for Vampire Weekend is that, uh, and bear with me, this is a little confusing, one of their new songs is called Sunflower. This is a different song than Post Malone's song, Sunflower, which was used in the Spider-Verse movie, which was fantastic. But to amp up the confusion, Vampire Weekend did a cover of Post Malone's Sunflower for the BBC um, a couple weeks ago. So I would highly recommend you check out Vampire Weekend's cover of sunflower which is different than vampire weekend's song called sunflower so pete knowing what you know and understanding what you understand about the music that i enjoy would i like this album did you listen to previous vampire weekend no Hmm. um everything i know about vampire weekend i think i learned from juno Uh, I think you would like Vampire Weekend. They are, it's indie pop, um, joyfulness, interesting polyrhythmics, but clear. I know that you're a very lyrics-oriented person, um, and Vampire Weekend definitely has big lyrics. Um, take a listen to their- Your use of the word joyful has me intrigued. Uh, if you haven't heard Oxford Comma off their first album, you absolutely have to <laughs> listen to it because the chorus is "Who gives a bleep about an Oxford Comma?" Um, I do. I do too. Kidding? I do too. <laughs> um, but it's it's a delightful song. Uh, give a listen to that. Listen to their first say. album and then check out some of these newer songs. Wonderful. Are you a Vampire Weekend person, Joe? Um, not too too much. I remember when their first album dropped and it seemed to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I remember enjoying what I heard off of it, but not enough to like rush out to, you know, pick up the album myself or anything like that. And I've certainly not followed their trajectory since then, but this does sound interesting. I was a little disappointed with their second album and then sort of slept on their third, but coming back to those two, I'm like, oh, I was dumb. These are actually really good. Um, Also, if you ever listen to XRT, if you're in the Chicagoland area, you've definitely heard some Vampire Weekend because they play it twice a day every day uh, in the classic XRT mode of, you know, we have 50 songs that we play. (laughs) That is all we play. Yeah, I... I'm actually a big fan of whenever Pete makes me listen to music for this podcast because I just don't listen to all that much music. Mm-hmm. So 
regardless of whether or not I enjoy the music that he makes me listen to, it's always an interesting experience. And sometimes it's uh, really successful and sometimes it's less so. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, what would you say is stuck in your head this week, pop culture-wise? Well, I was I knew this question was coming, and so I have been racking my brain all week trying to think. And us keeps mm. coming in. Um, Sarah and I went to see it opening weekend, so that has been a couple of weeks. But it is just in my head, like as as per your instructions, you know. Um, it it is a have, have have you talked about it on the show? Have you have you guys seen we it yet? Not, we we um, both I seen it, I think. I have not seen it yet. Oh, okay. Um, I was going to try and go see it this Friday. The problem is that I have to see it by myself because there is no one in my life who would enjoy seeing it with me, except uh, possibly my sister, but she already went with her husband. Um, and okay. Friday night, yeah, Friday night, going to see a movie by myself was just too much of a anything. Um, okay. I am looking. I am looking forward to seeing it. Um, and I'm I'm really interested by all of the um, reviews that I've heard because regardless of whether people I feel like there have been strong feelings both in both directions from mm-hmm. people, but regardless of whether people liked it or not, everyone seems to agree that there's a lot to talk about. Definitely, I think that's definitely fair to say. Um, it th- there's. Of course, there's always the very tired uh, online discussion about, well, is it really a horror movie? Oh, God. And I, I'm not even going to touch on that because that's ridiculous. But Also, think... George Peele tweeted and said it's a horror movie. So yeah, I think so, word of God gets to... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it, to talk about the, the film itself, it more than Get Out, I think, filled me with dread pretty much from the word go mm-hmm. um and i think very few movies that i've seen particularly recently have been able to sustain that level of emotion that long you know there i you know with sarah if you're not watching horror movies you're not watching movies at all so um we've seen our fair share of scary movies but this one really kind of upped the emotional investment um and i think regardless of your feelings for it that is a commendable feat Mm -hmm. um and also jordan peele related we took the plunge and have done the subscription to cbs all access so we can watch his twilight zone um and the two episodes that are that were available when we had time to watch them are fantastic so uh but that's kind still, of that, that may be for another time i don't know <laughs> yeah i'm still having kind of a snit fit over the fact that cbs all access exists yeah yeah so <laughs> i understand um i was hoping I, that we'd I mean, be able to to hold out but when they made the first episode free on youtube we watched that free and it was so good <laughs> that we were like well crap so we're yeah. doing six dollars a month to uh, watch the rest of these episodes when they when they come out and are made available. I am also having a snippet over the DC streaming service because yeah. while while they only had the Titans show, it was easy to ignore. But now I really want to watch Doom Patrol. <laughs> like, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I I cannot wait until we're just down to like. Te- you have to be subscribed to ten different streaming services, and then they can start bundling, and then we're back to cable. Right. That's, yeah, for real. Yeah. It's dumb. Um, but also, they're doing Swamp Thing in May, who is Whoa. maybe my favorite DC superhero. I had not um, seen that. That's a, that's amazing. <laughs> I only I saw it as an ad on Instagram, and then got mad that they hadn't done like a trailer. And then it was kind of like, well, but if they had done a trailer, I would probably already be paying for it. And right. yeah. <laughs> so they so were kind it's of good. <laughs> yeah. Um. So we are going to take a quick recess, uh, and when we come back, we are going to get into Found Families. 
Welcome back. Uh, today we are going to be talking about found families. Um, the genesis of the topic uh, came, which came from uh, the homework that Joe has picked for us. So, Joe, why don't you go ahead and give us a little introduction to Akira? Gladly. <clears throat> um, Akira is a anime, an animated film from 1988. Uh, it's based on the long-running, well, it's ended now, but it was long-running at the time, uh, manga, or Japanese comic, of the same name. Um, the film deviates a bit from that storyline uh, near the end, but plot-wise, we are dealing with uh, a biker gang of teens in Neo-Tokyo, post-World War Three. Uh, as they kind of just try and make it in the world. Um, their good friend Tetsuo, um, who's a little bit of a <laughs> egotistical uh, knucklehead, um, bites off a little bit more than he can chew in a fight with a rival biker gang um, and gets picked up by a military force um, who subjects him to some, shall we say, less than ethical medical treatments, which unleash a psychological force within him. And the rest of the movie is spent with Kaneda, the leader of that biker gang, um, trying to reclaim his friend from the clutches of this, of what he perceives, I think, this... Uh, evil military force that has kind of broken up his uh, his group, his family, uh, that kind of thing. And it ends with a, a very singular <laughs> battle um, for, I think, equal parts redemption and uh, kind of understanding of what the rest of their life is going to look like. Um, if I'm being vague... I think it's because there's there's a lot going on subtextually here uh, that is both of its time and oddly prescient. That's something I was noticing as I was rewatching it uh, this this past week. But um, to our kind of the the homework theme, uh, I think you you kind of touched on something, Martha, before we before we started recording, and I'm going to bring it in here that. Uh, Talking about found families, I, I would agree that there might be two or three different found families uh, in this movie. One being the biker gang in uh, that Kaneda and Tetsuo and their friends are a part of. And then as the movie progresses, you kind of see that fragment in a way. Um and reform in, in different configurations. Uh, each one of those families looking very different and kind of having a different structure to it. So, yes. Um, and I'd like to make a distinction here because mm. it's one of the things that I have to kind of think about every time I think about found families. Like, like Kay's, Kay's a revolution revolutionary cell i yeah. guess mm -hmm. yeah that's what i would call um, yeah like i i would put them at the level of a, of a found family because of like her relationship that she has with what's the guys with the mustache I think what's it's his Ryu. name yeah like she she clearly has such a strong emotional connection to him but like her cell as it is like it, it's that it's that emotional connection that she has that elevates them from just like a, like fellow freedom fighters yeah like a group that's working together versus this is my family um yeah which is also agree. which is also how i think of the the kids the mm -hmm. group of like psychic children that are being experimented on yes um who actually end up being the most interesting group to me just mm -hmm. because like Definitely. you have ele you have elements of like we are treating each other like family because 
it's how we are surviving this whole experience. Right, like shared trauma and yeah. shared experience. Yeah. Which also, I think, may be part of where Tetsuo and Canada's connection comes from, like growing up in this really horrible uh, environment. Mm-hmm. Um, full I... disclosure, you guys, I am not a fan of this movie. <laughs> no. I, I kind of um, thought you wouldn't be. <laughs> It's you know I saw it I saw it a long time ago. Um, I watched it for the first time I think when I was fourteen, which I was probably too young to do that. But since then I've read the manga, which I love, oh, and I know that this, yeah, I know this isn't super fair. And I, Pete can tell you I am a, an advocate for adaptations. Like, I don't believe there's anything inherently uh, inferior about an adaptation i am not a the book is always better kind of person mm-hmm. but you lose so much complexity in the story from the manga to this movie and like a lot of the choices they make are i find very puzzling as to what they yes. keep and what they leave out yes um, I, would, I would definitely agree with that like the entirety of the movie is basically the first book uh-huh. or like the first two books of the manga yep. um and like focusing on tetsuo's like the body horror element of yeah focusing on tetsuo's explosion into like a giant flesh amoeba flesh monster yeah <laughs> yeah definitely um so i like martha i had seen this you know when I was 14 or 15 or whatever, and have since then had like scenes, had watched scenes of it, um, mm. but had not sat down and watched it all the way through. I was very fortunate. Your timing uh, for assigning this was perfect. Um, a local uh, movie theater does a Miyazaki March and then an anime April where like they air various anime movies in April on like Thursday nights. And That's very awesome. uh, they were showing Akira this past Thursday. So I was able to go see this um subtitled and on the big screen which was that's... fantastic yeah that's awesome except for the drunk adult babies next to me who cheered oh, their no. beer glasses every time anyone said akira which <laughs> is a lot they... um yeah so uh that part was annoying everything else was fantastic i i absolutely take Martha's point that the plot gets a little bit at times Mm -hmm. Um, and I haven't read the the manga so I'm not sure how it scans there I think because I had seen it at at a younger age and didn't know what I was getting into then so I had like strong memories of it being like 10 hours long and super confusing (laughs) and what's up with these little gray babies Uh, watching it this time around it made a lot more sense to me and I enjoyed it a lot more probably because I had, like, imagined the parts that I didn't like as being so much more um, than Mm. what they actually were. And I also latched on to the, like, the social revolutionary aspect of this so much more this time around than when I was 14. Um, And I I was able to appreciate the animation and the music so much more this time around. Um, The the soundtrack is by uh, Jadio Yamashiri shirogumi and i am reading that off a screen not off the top of my head um and it's like i was just listening to it the very next day um not yeah the the one fun thing that i'll add before we move on to actual found families is uh this takes place in 2019 and neo tokyo is hosting the olympics in 2020 Turns out that real Tokyo is hosting the Olympics in 2020. So I uh, also noticed that unless there's a giant flesh, a baby amoeba monster (laughs) uh, singularity explosion thing. Um, I would like, I I would like to just take a quick moment Mm. to give us all a huge amount of credit for not wailing. Kaneda! Kaneda. Yes, every time someone says Tetsuo. Because <laughs> um, that's, that's a loop from which it is hard to escape. Yes. Anyway. I, I I don't remember which one is Kaneda and which one is Tetsuo. So um, at, at this uh, screening, there was a woman dressed in a um, Kaneda biker jacket outfit, um, yes. which was super cool. But I definitely... Um, was texting that there was someone in a Tetsuo biker jacket outfit because I had switched their names up. Um, gotcha. 
Martha, one thing you were saying earlier about the found families, and I, I agree, I, I love the the espers, like the, the creepy gray. Um, I was reading that they're supposed to be like 40 and just stuck in like chunted, stunted mm-hmm. childhood bodies. Um, mm-hmm. And then Kaneda and Tetsuo as well. I think both of those found family elements really coalesce in the last scene where you have the flashback to um, the, the children's childhood and getting found by the government and being made into psychics with Akira. Um, and then also like Tetsuo and Kaneda's childhood and meeting and and sort of that sense that Tetsuo was always in Kaneda's shadow, which pushed him to to sort of make the choices he does once he gets actual power. Um, I thought that like those flashbacks really helped coalesce a lot of what was going on in terms of the found families. Well, and one of the things that I enjoyed about that was that I think it's important to remember that in all families, like bitterness and jealousy exist. So even when you have, even when you have a, a, a familial group that is um, like the family you choose rather than the family that you have by obligation, like these things still exist, uh, even when you're talking about family by choice. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Um, I do. I do agree with you, Pete. That you, there's there is a lot of coalescing that happens there at the very end, and you see um, this parallelism between the gray children, the orphans, essentially, um, and that even though they were kind of on opposing sides of the track, if you will. They had very similar childhoods where they were, they had no parents. They were at the behest of the government, mm-hmm. um, making all these decisions for them. Uh, and that, and yet, even though you could potentially argue that, you know, the, the psychics had the quote unquote worst childhood, um, they seem to be a much stronger unit, even though there's a clear uh, hierarchy of, you know, within the, the that trio, um, which, you know, does raise an interesting question about, uh, you know, why why Tetsuo is so uh, so angry when it seems clear that he does have he is more or less surrounded by people that. Um, maybe don't know how to show it, but do care about him, like, mm-hmm. about his safety, um, that he seems completely uh, unable to accept that from them. Well, and I think it's important to remember that Tetsuo and Canada are both really young. Yeah. Mm. Like, they are, they're in, um, like, the Japanese equivalent of high school. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. like 16 well, like, or starts. something. Yeah, they're like maximum 16. So, you know, they're both dealing with the the normal, like, hostility and confusion and anger that you get from being a teenager. And also this world that they live in sucks. Right. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, like, the, the strength of a, you know, that was one of the things that I thought was interesting. And I don't know if the movie meant to do this, but... Tetsuo is incredibly strong, and part of me wonders if that's because, unlike the other espers, he's legitimately a teenager. Like, he doesn't have the -hmm. control that they have from the years of their programs, but Mm -hmm. he also doesn't have any of the tempering of your emotions that adults get. Like, he's still, like, raw and uncut emotion just from being a teenager. And and he had such a rougher life than the the espers who were taken very young and sort of like, like obviously the government labs not great, but very different than like you know the street gang life, which mm-hmm. which creates a very different mindset and tempers you in a very different way. Very true. Um, unless anybody has anything. It's- more specific to say about Akira, I think that that is a good point to transition to mm-hmm. our next media. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pete, tell us a little bit about Firefly. So, uh, speaking of media that I first consumed in high school, 
Uh, I assigned Firefly, the uh, much-beloved cult sci-fi show from Fox, ran uh, from 2002-2003 for a single truncated and butchered season. Um, (laughs) I specifically assigned the first episode just to get the first episode out of the way so you can meet everyone. Um, The eighth episode, Out of Gas, which is a flashback episode that shows um, basically how the crew came together. Um, And the final episode, uh, Objects in Space, which sort of shows the crew confronting a stranger on board, um, dives deeply into the the discord and the disharmony between them all before finally coming together and and showing how they all can work together um, as like a family unit. Um, Real quick, you all know what Firefly is, but it's basically a a space western about uh, some outlaws who uh, fought on the wrong, on the losing side of an anti-government civil war. Now they're smugglers and um work for higher types uh flying around on their spaceship uh serenity um you got your captain with the heart of gold very much a han solo type uh and then uh crazy psychic girl a whole bunch of other people um it's like cowboy bebop yeah but more yeah i it's, mean yeah it's cowboy bebop and trigon yeah. combined you're and with with a good dose of uh like Star Wars and and whatnot. Um, you're listening to a pop culture podcast. You've uh, where Akira was one of our homework assignments. You've definitely seen Firefly. <laughs> I also I also had to double check with Pete while we were figuring out homework for this episode because I was convinced that we'd already talked about Firefly. And, and we very um, well might have, but I don't know if we've talked about these specific episodes. No, and I don't think I actually don't think that we have. I just hmm. feel as though I am always talking about Firefly. Right? How could we not have? We've been doing this for like two years now. It must have come up. Um, and I I will say that I assigned this both because I think that it works very well in and of itself, um, but also kind of as a stand-in for a lot of I think sci-fi shows especially do this very well. Um, I was considering assigning The Expanse, which I think really does a good job at found family. Uh, dynamics, but that doesn't really get going until about season two. Um, and it's a kind of thing, like, sci-fi TV shows where it's a bunch of people together on a spaceship is a great example of a found family, and you can do it as a slow burn, where you slowly learn about the characters, their relationships and, and interactions grow. Oftentimes it takes a while for that family relationship to gel and come together, um, but even, I know, Martha, you were just watching uh, the 2009 Star Trek. I think that's a great found family example because um, you put a bunch of people in a boat in space where they have to be together all the time and they're going to create some sort of familial dynamic. Well, and that's one of the things that I think is interesting about the different kinds of found families that you get in these stories. Like you have... The difference between Star Trek and Firefly is that the the crew of the Firefly chooses to be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's probably an argument to be made that the Star Trek crew chooses to stay after a while, um, but they are assigned to that ship in a way that mm-hmm. the Firefly people are not. Right. Theoretically, at any port, anyone on the fire on Serenity could get off and be like, "Bye." Uh, whereas that's not the case with the Federation. Well, and I think, you know, particularly an object in space, they have the chance to leave mm-hmm. and like are pushed out the door. I mean, they're pushed out the door by necessity because their ship is dead in the water. Um, oh, you're talking about but they uh, come back. out of gas. Oh, not object in not objects in space. Yeah. Um, out of gas. Yeah. Which weirdly was the first episode of the show that I watched ever. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. That's a that would be a weird place to start. Yeah, that that was the episode I thought about when I was thinking about the found families because I think it does such a good job at sort of building that backstory. But then I'm like, I can't just assign that, you know, without assigning like the the pilot at the very least, you know. Right. Um. And, well, and also, so I've seen it. I've seen, I've seen it in two contexts. I've seen it both in the, I have never met these people before, mm-hmm. um, but also then after having seen the show in the way that it's supposed to go, um, I've seen it with all of that emotional backstory as well. And it is better, it is better in context. <laughs> <laughs> it's bold, a strong episode. Bold claim. It's a 
episode either way, but mm-hmm. it is it is better when you know when you have all of the emotional information, I'll say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had not watched Firefly in a long time. I think the last time I sat down and watched all of it was in college. Um, and so it was interesting just dipping in to these very specific points. Mm. And what I know, it, it felt like a distillation of what I remembered from my last viewing so long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think works very well at um, showcasing, like you're saying, Pete, showcasing what makes this crew function in the day-to-day, you know, um, that they might have their own personal aims and goals for whatever they're doing, you know, uh, but that when it comes down to brass tacks, they do understand that they have to work together, um, which, you know, if that's not a family, I'm not sure what is, you know, that everyone has their goals, but you do recognize that, you know, if you can't agree that someone's got to take the trash out, um, you know, it's never going to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it was, it was very interesting, uh, revisiting these characters and realizing how much they do kind of care for each other. Cause I think it's easy to get sucked up into the action and, you know, lose, kind of lose some of that connective tissue that, um, has to be there to hold them together and, uh, make them work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's one reason I really wanted to have objects in space as one of the three episodes, um, that and, and out of gas were the two that I was like thinking the most about in terms of this, mm-hmm. because it's one where you grapple with like what happens when we can no longer like trust a member of the family. Um, and there's always throughout the entire series, there's the tension of um, River and Simon are wanted by the government and she's a crazy psychic girl and he's a doctor, but is her brother. Um, and that sort of tension really comes to a head in objects in space in a way that begins with like the crew, like legitimately feeling imperiled by her um, Mm. in a way that's out of her control. Uh, And how like it's, it's the cracks in the family, I think coming through the strongest in the show. Um, And then obviously is resolved, um, but it's, it's, it's showing that, that tension and, and what happens when it's not a, you know, when there is a, not even dysfunction, but just a serious challenge to a found family familial dynamic. Uh, and I should say, like, an internal actually, challenge I'm, rather than an ex, like an external one. I'm really glad that you ran me through that, because Objects in Space is my least favorite episode by a lot. Hmm. Um, so I was... I was curious about why you chose that one because I tend to think of Heart of Gold as being a better mm. example of um, like the family nature, but that's just because you also get the opposing family of the brothel in addition to the spaceship. Right, mm-hmm. and the more direct conflict of like Mal and Inara and um, the brothel owner. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of it in terms of like the breakdown of their relationship between Simon and River. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and like River and the crew is, as well. Like, cause it's, you know, it, it's very much. That's, sorry. That's what I mean. Like yeah, the breakdown okay. between the crew and Simon, Simon and, River. and River. Yeah. yeah. Cause like, I mean, in one way, the episode almost reads like a, what do you do when a family member is, you know, it's like, it could, like it, in River's case, it's, psychic psychosis but it could be like you know an alzheimer's uh you know parent or something or someone with an addiction or or whatnot like a uh a problem that impacts the entire family but is not necessarily anyone's fault Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we've been talking a lot about choice versus uh circumstance in the just sort of development of these family groups. And one of the things that I tend to gravitate towards 
when we're talking about found family are kind of people who do not necessarily choose to be together, um, but when thrown, when thrown together, um, you know, not just make the best of a situation, but uh, develop deeper bonds, which was why I chose Runaways for everyone to read for this uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so Runaways is a comic that started in 2003. Uh, it was originally created by Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona. Uh, people may recognize Brian Vaughn's name as the writer on Saga, uh, which he is doing currently. Um, It is a Marvel comic about a group of teenagers who discover that their parents are supervillains, and they decide to not only run away from their families, um, but also band together uh, to combat the evil that their parents are doing. Uh, There are six of these teenagers, um, one of which uh, Carolina discovers that she is actually an alien. the youngest, Molly, discovers that she, she's not a mutant. I think she's a... Um, I thought she was a mutant. No, I think she's an inhuman. Uh, a, to- oh. a, totally, distinction... a totally different thing if we're talking about movie rights. Well, yes, I was going to say, the distinction of which is very important to Marvel and not that important to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Nico, who has magic powers and who goes on to be part of a whole bunch of different, like, sub-Avengers groups. Hmm. Uh, And then Chase and Alex, who are mostly normal, but also, like, really smart and resourceful and all that stuff. And Gertrude. Oh, and Gertrude, who has old lace, the dinosaur. Yes. Shame on me. Shame Shame on you. Shame on you. Yes, shame on me. Um, So I asked everybody to read the first volume of this book called Pride and Joy, which is basically covers uh, the kids discovering what their parents, that their parents are part of a supervillain group called the Pride um, and that they are doing something nefarious that involves human sacrifice um, and kind of what their immediate next steps are. Um, Some of us have read more than that, um, (laughs) but really what I wanted to cover was just the relationship that these kids had before and after discovering that their parents are super evil and kind of what they choose to do with that knowledge um, and how they cope with it together. Uh, this show has also been made, or this comic has also been made into a show on Hulu, uh, which I really love and highly recommend. Um, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about the comic right now. Um. So... A couple things. First off, it took me until literally five minutes ago reading the title of this to realize that Pride and Joy was a reference to the Pride, the supervillain group. Um, so that's on me. Um, the other thing is I, I came to... Hmm? I forgive you. Oh, right. Um, I came to this having <laughs> seen season one of the show and really enjoying it. I thought that um, season one had some pacing issues kind of dragged in some places, but um, I think captured these kids and their dynamics incredibly well. Um, so then coming to the, the graphic novel, I it felt very familiar in a lot of ways because season one of the show hits a lot of the same points. But at the same time, it's definitely different enough. And I think this is a like a better choice for this topic because the kids are way more antagonistic towards each other at the beginning um and even throughout the thing they the the show the kids are all generally likable to varying degrees um and develop more fleshed out relationships because you can do that over 12 episodes um this there even by the end they're still like not all friends which i think is a really Mm -hmm. good tension that's built into it um fine. it feels i mean it felt it felt very much to me like like they only see each other once a year so they're not friends right right um and at this point they're all kind of awkward teenagers so you know when you open on alex being like "Ugh, why do i have to spend time with these people that i barely know mm-hmm. um as a 16 year old like that felt very that felt like something that I had experienced before. Cause like my parents had friends that we only saw like once a year. Mm-hmm. And then I would be expected to like go play with their kids while my parents hung out. And mm-hmm. it was like, why 
why i don't care about these people right, right. and then it's really awkward because you don't have anything to talk about and you know teenagers are awkward animals anyway mm-hmm. um so i i appreciated the fact that at the start of this book it's not even that they're not like friends but they're all kind of like why am i even here right mm-hmm. they're not having a good time um r- real quick aside last thing i'll say i was not a big fan of adrian alfona's um artwork but I had also literally just finished reading uh, the most recent Wick Div book, which has gorgeous art, so that might have been a little um, skewed for me. Uh, but that that was no, kind of my only critique of the book. It's kind of rough, and it's definitely something that gets better as it goes. This is also a book from 2003, yeah. which, like, the early aughts just had very different comic art conventions than yeah. what mm-hmm. is happening right now. Yeah. So, Joe, had you read this? Had you... I had not read this before, did no. Did you have a relationship with the Runaways before this? No. Um, I remember hearing when the show got announced, and it meant nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm now interested in, in perhaps looking into that show because I did enjoy this book so much. Um, I will say in the show it takes them a very long time to, like, run away, run away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah they do a lot like there's a lot more of them like going to high school and being high schoolers which i kind of liked but also there was an element of like well but when are we actually going to get into the story right like when's the dinosaur gonna show up yeah yes um the answer is the answer later is... than you want right we <laughs> had the budget we had the budget to do one dinosaur episode. <laughs> That's fair. Um, but what I think what got me from the from the get go is how almost like within that first issue, <clears throat> excuse me, within that first issue, you know, where we're being introduced to each family, but more specifically each teen, each kid, how we get maybe five or six panels uh, with each kid initially and how much um, just personality we get almost immediately Mm -hmm. through those. Um, So when we do have them finally all kind of mashed together against their will, um, the decisions that they're making right off the bat immediately make sense. Um, Like that was very impressive to me. Um, and just the, the realization that, um, Molly for the, up until it's revealed that she does have, um, these like super strength, uh, abilities and skills and things right up to that point, everyone is convinced that she's talking about starting puberty and no one wants to talk about it. Um, (laughs) you know, talking about family, like that that felt so real to me (laughs) where uh even though her parents are masquerading as doctors uh like they don't even want to talk to her about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and then she's like oh these older kids that i have to be around surely one of them will help me (laughs) understand what's happening to my body and even they don't want to talk about it um you know just those those weird smaller dynamics that i think we tend to kind of gloss over in in our lives because it's like well duh you know you don't want to highlight every single little thing that happens but seeing those presented in something like this um just goes to make those family relationships um just all the more real. Uh, yeah, that it was, it was very, very cool seeing them grow together in like smaller relationships that kind of ultimately coalesce into, well, I don't have to like you, but I do recognize that if we're together, we stand a better chance of staying alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm willing to do that until a better option presents itself. 
I also think that having Molly be younger than the rest of the group, because like everyone else is like fifteen or sixteen, and Molly is thirteen. Eleven, thirteen. I think um, we'll call it twelve and split the difference. But like, yeah. like yeah. definitely middle She's, school versus high school. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think that that presented a pretty solid opportunity for building those like quieter family moments because. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're running away from their parents, she's going to need more in the way of, like, being taken care of. Yeah, And it it kind of forces, and I think you see this more later, like, the longer that they are out in the world together. But you do see the older kids start to step into this more, like, parental attitude, particularly around Molly, which uh, reinforces just the whole feeling of family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One one thing that I I'm I'm really glad you're signed this for many reasons. Um, but one thing was this assignment more than any others allowed us to see the collapse of the actual family units that caused mm. the creation of the found family. Um, in Akira, we have sort of a collapse of the found family with the bikers, um, mm-hmm. and then with Firefly, everyone is like way past their own collapses and and you know finding the boats for their own reasons that are in the past. Whereas this is a real-time realization that the, like, the biological families are, like, dangerous for their well-being, and so they are forced together um, into this new unit. So it's it's a lot more raw in a lot of ways. Well, I think you get that in Firefly, too. Um, not necessarily in the episodes that you picked for us, Pete, but in, like, knowing that Simon and River are actual family and yeah. had to repudiate like the rest of their family for River's survival. When, and Simon um, and River, I think, are the ones who are the most raw, um, whereas the rest of the boat isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although you also have Zoe and Wash who have made themselves mm-hmm. a family. Like an insular family unit. Yeah, a family yeah. within a family. Mm-hmm. Families and families and families. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have two kind of main points on our uh, discussion document that I would like to talk about now that we've addressed all of our uh, homeworks as individuals. And the first one is the nature of found families. And um, we've kind of touched on this before, but what, like, how do we think the how do we think the found family units in these stories are driving those stories? Like, are they are they incidental to the stories? Are they are the stories kind of built? How how is how is the found family unit functioning within the narratives that we are looking at? I mean, Runaways is the most direct and obvious where it is a it is a story of finding a family, um, and so I think that it's very much central to that mm-hmm. well in a, i mean in akira i don't think i think you don't really have a story unless kaneda feels as strongly about tetsuo as he does mm-hmm. like if he if he had been if tetsuo had been a more um disposable member of the biker gang like if he and kaneda hadn't functioned as basically adoptive brothers i don't think that uh canada goes looking for him to save him the way that he does mm-hmm. and, yeah, and we, definitely s- agree with that. we see that because the other members of the biker gang don't go like they're not right involved in the like the search in the same way mm-hmm. even though canada is kind of functionally their leader like they're not following him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's true it I would agree more that it, it the the found family there and as we said, you know, there's kind of more than one in that particular text. Um but the I think the main fam- found family would be Kaneda and Tetsuo as as kind of uh circumstantial brothers that without that you don't have much narrative thrust at all. Mm-hmm. Like it, it absolutely drives the story i will also say that there's a scene at the very beginning of the movie when um 
Haneda sees one of the espers trying to run away and then getting reclaimed. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that they reclaim him is one of the other espers says, it's time to come home now. And that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think you get that much control over somebody if you don't also have that feeling of, like, familial obligation that the government has kind of been breeding within that group of characters. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and we, I mean, we even have a moment, or at least there's a, there's two or three moments where Kaneda tries to do that same thing with, with Tetsuo, where, you know, Tetsuo breaks out and of, of the, the holding facility and Kaneda's like, well, great, you're here. Let's, let's get back to the way things used to be, you know. But by that point, too much has happened. Tetsuo's, you know, unable for one reason or another to acquiesce to that request. Um, which I think, again, goes back to what we were saying earlier, that even though we do have these separate family units, each one is functioning um, on its own kind of hierarchy. And... You know what we see one success i feel like we see one successful family unit with the espers and we see what may have at one time been a more coherent family unit of the biker gang but between getting older and outside interference that family breaks apart and even though kind is trying to pull it all back together um he ultimately fails at reclaiming that family unit but in the process finds arguably a stronger family unit by aligning himself with k and a more noble mission than just you know although let's be real he's only doing the the revolutionary sect because k is there like i don't think he has any actual like political opinions yeah no that's definitely true yeah (laughs) that's definitely true (laughs) It like this might be stretching it way too far, and uh, the I, I was trying to think the end game of what I'm gonna say, and I don't. So, and for that reason, I don't think it works. But in the in the middle section of the movie, when uh, Tetsuo has fled from the government uh, center and um, and then sort of re-meets his uh, his biker gang friends. Um, mm-hmm. That, to me, almost feels like it's trying to be a reading about how um, eventually you have to, like, leave your family. Uh, Like, the idea of family units should be able to survive, um, like, distance. separation. Yeah, separation, exactly. Um, And people just growing up and changing and doing different things. Um, And sometimes they do survive that, and sometimes they don't. Um, I I think that that analysis breaks down because the third act exists. Um, Right. But at that moment, it feels very much like a, because that's when Tetsuo comes out and says, like, you used to, I'm, I'm sick of you bossing me around all the time. I'm sick of you saving me and thinking mm-hmm. that I need to be saved. Uh, I don't yeah. need to be saved all the time. I want to be able to, like, stand on my own two feet. Um, and that's a very legitimate and important thing that families go through. Like, when when someone is, like, you know, becomes an adult, it's like you you need to be able to let them go and do their own thing. Um and suffer the consequences that happen, and then support them, but also, you know, not, not, you know, be like not be um, able to be there all the time. Well, I actually think that's a good illustration of how even found family can be toxic, mm-hmm. because, yeah. like, I ideally you would be able to like let your family members do the growing that they need to do. Um, And I think a lot of the toxic family stories that we hear both about chosen family and natural family or not natural family, um, biological family um, comes from people not being able to like let their family members grow and change the way that they need to into giant Um, amoeba monsters that take over the (laughs) the city (laughs) growth and change before that i mean before that i think it's really clear that tetsuo has a lot of you know even though he may have a lot of love for kaneda he also has a lot of bitterness Mm -hmm. um and jealousy about the way that he perceives 
that Canada has maybe been holding him back or like not letting him flourish. And whether that's whether that is real or not, it is real to Tetsuo. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I enjoyed because I, I feel like the the idea of found family tends to be a very positive idea. Like we have you know, we can all choose the relationships in our lives that we want that we want to elevate to the level of family. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that those bonds also have uh, the potential to become toxic and not good for you. Right. And that you can still you can always make the choice to cut those cut those relationships, even if it's really even if it's hard to do that. You know, even if your friend has turned into a giant flesh monster pile. <laughs> uh, has has flourished and reached his full potential. Um, uh what you were just saying that was interesting because I feel like so often the found family narrative is coded either explicitly or implicitly in the idea that um, you are finding and creating a new family because the biological family was problematic or toxic in some way. Um, and like Runaways is the perfect example of this. Like they are forced to break from their uh, biological families and create this new family. Um, whereas that's not always necessarily the case. And I think Simon and River is a good example where, um, mm. well, maybe not a great example because uh, the Tams are not necessarily the best, uh, but there's clearly a lot of love there and a lot of, um, you know, support. Um, but they they had to make a, a, a clean break from that because of the unique situation of, of River and have found this new family. But like if the Tams allowed Simon and River back, they would probably, like, I don't know if they would necessarily go back, but they would probably resume communication and try to maintain a normal relationship. Like, found families can exist without breaking from biological families and even from people who have, like, incredibly healthy biological family relationships. Well, and I mean, again, I think that goes back to what you were saying with um, with Wash and... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, of course, I... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Zoe, you know, them being a part of the crew does not detract in any way from their marriage. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there's there are some lines here or there. Uh, I think it's in the pilot um, when, you know, Wash is like, I'm your husband. Like, if I want to spend time with you, I should be able to do that. I shouldn't have to ask for permission, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, they, I think, arguably have a fairly healthy marriage, even though they are a part of a larger family unit. Um, and so I think, you know, you've got opposite sides of that coin. You have um, Simon and River, who are a part of the ship family and are good together as brother and sister. But their biological family may be not the not the best place for them to be at the moment. Um, and then at the other end, you have Zoe and Wash, who are healthy in both places mm-hmm. um, and are able to get a more full and complete uh, relationship out of out of both of those um, ecosystems, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is all the time that we have for today. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a delight. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, this uh, has been wonderful. Uh, do you have anything on the internet that you would like to share with our followers? Anything, um, if you would like to share your social media, any projects you'd like to plug? Um, I think... If, if anything I've said on here has struck a chord with you, the best place to find similar thoughts would be my Twitter, um, which is at Chiazar. That's C-H-I-A-C-Z-A-R. Wonderful. Excellent handle. Uh, you... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at DYDYH podcast. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram um, at the same handle. You can find us at our home on the web at homeworkpodcast.com. 
Um, you can find us on Facebook. You can email us at show at podcast.com. If you have questions, comments, concerns, if you have strenuously disagreed with anything we've said, you can follow us at Pico 3000. Um, if you, <laughs> Hey, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> you let that go remarkably long. I, I was like, oh, she's doing a weird thing where she'll say both our handles for us. Wait, no, she's not. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, if you would like to follow me and everything I'm doing online, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at magical Martha. Uh, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, the most recent one has a lot of feelings that I had about the show Shrill, um, which you can find at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Uh, Pete, where would you like people uh, to be able to find you? Uh, you can send how much you enjoyed the show to uh, my Twitter handle at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000. Um, politics, pop culture, one of my most recent threads was my guess of how Game of Thrones' last scene is going to go. Uh, I think it's yeah, going to be great. <laughs> uh, our next episode, um, we are going to be taking a bit of a spring break, uh, just to touch base on what pop culture we've been enjoying this spring, what we're looking t forward to in the summer. Um, let me check the date on that real fast. Um, we will not yet have seen Infinity War, so we won't be talking about that yet. Correct, but hopefully um, by then, Martha, you'll have seen us. Potentially. So we about that. We'll find out. Maybe we'll I be do, talking about it. I do enjoy voting with my dollar, so I would like to see that one in the theater, so mm -hmm, we'll see. Mm -hmm. um, that is it for us. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. Class dismissed. <laughs>